You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. A stunningly beautiful woman stood at the highest point of the Manhattan skyline. She was naked, perched on her tiptoes at the very top of the tower of Madison Square Garden at 26th Street, more than 300 feet off the ground. Fifty Edison lamps lit her up, revealing slim adolescent hips, pomegranate breasts, a hairless cleft. Late-night revelers staggering home from the taverns and clubs tipped their hats to her. The woman's name was Diana. She was a 13-foot gilded copper statue of the Roman goddess of the hunt. Lovely Diana, virginal goddess, towered over the surrounding five-story buildings. Guidebooks touted her as drawing as many visitors as that clothed giantess of liberty in the harbor. Perfectly balanced on ball bearings, the statue could spin. For more than a decade, Diana's breasts and outstretched arms revealed the direction of the winds. New Yorkers knew that nipples pointing uptown meant breezes to the north. Architect Stanford White had paid for her out of his own pocket and demanded a pubescent body that matched his desires. Famed sculptor Augustus St. Gaudens, better known for his equestrian heroes, had modeled this, his only female nude statue, after his young mistress, Julia Baird. Under the respectable cloak of neoclassical art, Diana was the sly insider joke of these two famous men, a museum-worthy tribute to forbidden lust. And so she was the perfect symbol of New York in the 1890s, a city of silk top hats on Wall Street and 16-year-old prostitutes trawling Broadway in floor-length dresses, of platitudes uptown and bawdy lyrics on the Bowery, of metropolitan opera divas performing Wagner, and of harem-pants hoochie-coochie dancers grinding their hips on concert saloon stages. Richard Zacks has written for the New York Times, Time Magazine, The Atlantic Monthly, and Harper's Magazine. He's written nonfiction books including The Pirate Coast, The Pirate Hunter, An Underground Education, and History Laid Bare. His new book is Island of Vice, Theodore Roosevelt's Doomed Quest to Clean Up a Sin-Loving New York. Thank you for joining me, Richard. Uh, great to be here. Richard, this is such a great book, and it's just so chock full of so many memorable characters painting a picture of a time that seems all too reminiscent of the present. I was I was shocked at just how much vice there was in the 1890s. I mean, uh, we think Vegas is such a corrupt town. Well, well, the things they were doing in New York were all illegal. They had illegal casinos, illegal brothels. Uh, the scope of it, 40,000 prostitutes, uh, all-night clubs, it, I, I was staggered by the amount of vice. Now, I'd like you to just talk a little bit about uh, the way you selected the time slice of Teddy Roosevelt's life and New York's life that you, you cover, because it's a very interesting selection and hones us down on a, on a story that I think is it's a challenging story to write. I was doing research to write my first novel. I've been harboring this fantasy for years. I've written some nonfiction. And uh, I stumbled on 1890s New York and uh, Commissioner Roosevelt. And I thought I read the Wikipedia that he basically cleaned up uh, all the sin in the city and, and the corruption on the police force. And then I started reading the newspapers of the time period. And they painted a completely different picture. Roosevelt was just overwhelmed by opposition. He, he became unbelievably unpopular. And the, all the newspapers, local politicians took endless pot shots at the man. And to his credit, he never backed down. But it, 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 it's just a King Arthur and his knights kind of quest to clean up the most corrupt city in the United States. Well, I think what I find so interesting is that we have uh, Teddy Roosevelt, who is a man, uh, as a man, he was a black and white man. I mean, he just won it was good or it was bad, and there was no, he was not a man of nuances, really. But you do such a great job at painting a nuanced picture, portrait of him. And I'm, I'm shocked to find out that Wikipedia is wrong. <laughs> yeah, and I don't want to imply that I usually go to Wikipedia. I was just getting conventional wisdom. Let's make that very clear. I always go mm -hmm. to original sources. Um, uh, Roosevelt was exceptionally black and white, but I, I think I did get at some of the nuance because he was very confessional in 
he had no one to confide in face to face during these two years. So he wrote these amazing letters to Henry Cabot Lodge and to his sister, who have, luckily for me was in England at the time. And he actually shows a little bit uh, of nuance. He, for instance, on his shutting down all the saloons in New York on Sunday, which could be one of the most unpopular decisions in, in New York City history, uh, he admits he at least calls it, I've hit an ugly snag. <laughs> and later says, for which I'm sorry, to his sister. Not, of course, to New York City, but to his sister. So I think that's where some of the nuance comes in. Now, uh, this is an interesting uh you know, story. You just tell a great. This is a good ripping yarn. Anybody who wants to read a ripping yarn about New York can turn to this book and find one. We begin with uh, one Reverend Charles Parkhurst, who's a very interesting character. Not everybody was particularly happy with the state of uh, affairs in New York, and Mr. Uh, Parkhurst was certainly first and foremost among them. He was. He he gave a sermon in February of 1892 that that basically called Tammany Hall and their officials polluted harpies and rum-soaked and libidinous and lecherous. And he called them every name. And he said that basically all the sins in the in the Bible are for sale in New York City and just pay a policeman. They, he said it was as organized as, as real estate taxes, basically. And the trouble was um, he expected everyone to cheer him. Instead, Tammany filed a libel suit against him, uh, accused him of libel. And Parkhurst decided, I've got to find out, I've got to back up my charges. I've got to know. So he hired a young, wise guy in New York City detective. You can't make this stuff up. If you're a novelist, you're just, you're over the moon. Uh, He hires a young, wise guy in New York City detective to take him on a sin tour of the worst places of New York in the 1890s. And uh, Parkhurst goes to brothels and gambling joints and opium dens, and uh, he witnesses these things and... and, uh, Charlie Gardner, who who fell on some hard times, uh, eventually writes a book about it. His experiences with the Reverend, and it's just a great book. So I, I you know, used a lot of that, and then coordinated with the court trials because a lot of these things later became court cases. So you can uh, triangulate what happened. I have to say, this is, must have been a a fairly challenging book to write because you do have so many threads that you handle so well. As readers, we just kind of immerse ourselves in this story, and it's very interesting. And we go through it; reads very much. You say you wanted to write a novel. I think you you pretty much got it here. It's just that it's all true. Uh, but talk a little bit about putting these threads together. Well, it's really interesting you bring that up because it actually did take me a total of five years from first day of research to you know final period at the end. And uh, part of the reason was I didn't want to open the book with Theodore Roosevelt became police commissioner on May 6th, 1895. I knew that wasn't the story. I knew the way to tell this story was to go back and describe all the vice in the city, but I didn't want to do it like a history lesson. I wanted to do it dramatically, so I needed to find a way to do that. And at first, I thought I was going to tell it through Big Bill Devery, who was the uh, corrupt police captain, who's basically the nemesis of Reverend Parkhurst and of Teddy Roosevelt. So I thought, what a great character. And I focused so much on Devery, I didn't realize... That, that the story wouldn't quite work that way. So then I wound up discovering that you could tell it through Parkhurst and then bring in Devery and then bring in Roosevelt. And I, I don't know if Roosevelt arrives, I don't know the exact page, but maybe not till page 60 does he dramatically arrive. I mean, I tease him up front, obviously, but he doesn't arrive uh, as police commissioner, I think, till about page 60. Tell us a little bit about um, the 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 construction of the character arcs in this book, because there are a lot of very interesting character arcs. Uh, and I love Char- Charlie Gardner. You you mentioned him briefly. Tell us a little love bit about too. his, his uh, story arc, because he's so much fun to read about. Oh, Charlie Gardner was such a wise guy, a 20-something-year-old uh, detective who had worked for the Jerry Society. And, and what, 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 what's so great is Reverend Parkhurst didn't realize when he got the recommendation to hire Gardner that Gardner had already been in trouble with the law several times and was had been accused of bribery and maybe even bigamy and his first wife had the police were very good when they wanted to dis- destroy somebody and they they found out about Gardner that that his first wife had possibly recruited girls for brothels and so basically um Parkhurst is hiring someone who's not at all an angel which i guess is good cuz he would know the the foul joints and all that but um i uh, the one little bit of trivia that i love about Gardner is he i'm not sure if i should say this on the air but he he married his uh, second wife inside the Statue of Liberty. So he's the answer to the little joke, what what man ever married one woman while inside another? Um, <laughs> now, 
So Gardner, at first, in, in Parker's eyes, is this saintly guy who's doing it for $5 a night, you know, but also for the love of the mission. And then gradually you get Gardner up on bribery charges. And you don't know whether Big Bill Devery, the police captain, has framed Gardner or whether Gardner's really corrupt. So you get a story arc there that, that's fun. And, you, and with Devery, you know that he's a completely corrupt police captain, but, but he's so likable. He's so funny. I mean... He just has a knack. The, the thing that frustrated me is I knew I had to end the book with Roosevelt, but I couldn't stop researching Devery. And I have another, I wrote another 60 pages on them, uh, on him running for mayor. And he ran on the, um, uh, against the Graft Trust. Tammany Hall kicked him out. So he ran against Tammany. And, and he's just, he's just a great character. Talk a little bit about Tammany Hall, because they're kind of like the, uh, the Dracula's castle in Carpathia that hovers over the background of this whole story. <laughs> well, yeah, Tammany Hall. I mean, we always think of Boss Tweed, but but the tw- they survived the Tweed scandal. What people don't realize was within a few years after Tweed, Tammany Hall was getting elected again. Uh, and they had won seven of the last mayoral elections before the one that brought in a reform Republican who appointed Roosevelt. So Tammany Hall is still incredibly powerful. And they, they're kind of, uh, I mean, you can't generalize at all, but they're the Irish strivers. They're, uh, they're the immigrants. They're the ones who, when people come off the boat, they got somebody waiting. They're the ones who, uh, uh, as uh, George Washington uh, Plunkett said, uh, when a family's burned out, I don't wait for the uh, charity organization to come and uh, offer them to help. By that time, they'll be dead of starvation. I go in, I give them food and a place to live, and then they give me their vote. And uh, that, that's kind of how they functioned. They're also, wait, one more, one more story. They were so corrupt. I love this story. They were so corrupt, and they had a swagger about them. So one Tammany official gets accused of delivering one-tenth of the 1,000 pounds of sponges he's supposed to deliver. And he says in court under oath about the sponges, Hell, did you weigh them dry? <laughs> I mean, these guys, they had, they had moxie. Now, uh, it's one of the things that's interesting as we read this book is to think of this in terms of uh, modern, uh, the origins of our modern uh, political parties, because these are, Tammany Hall was, were the Democrats and the Reformers were the Republicans. And it's interesting to see that proto in origins. Yeah. And, and, and Roosevelt was a reform Republican, but he was so far to the re- reform side at times that the uh, local New York City Republican Party basically wanted absolutely nothing to do with them. They even actually issued a statement, we denounce Rooseveltism, which, you know, today, now that Roosevelt's one of the leading lights of, in Republican history, it's just astounding to think that that could have happened, but it did. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, Big Bill Devery, because he was the first guy that uh, uh, Parkhurst went o- went after, and Parkhurst managed to get uh, Devery to trial before uh, Roosevelt ever got uh, his uh, first, first foot in the door. Right, exactly. Devery, Devery was born, uh, what's great for me is the symmetry, Devery was born almost the same time as Roosevelt in New York City, eight blocks apart. And uh, he died. Uh, they died the same year, 1919. Devery was you know, born to poor Irish parents. His father was a bricklayer. His, his uncle owned saloons. He worked in his uncle's saloons. He, uh, he joined the police force, and he was completely corrupt as far as vice goes. But a lot of, a lot of police officers claim he was a very good policeman in other regards, you know, that, that he, he, he suppressed crime, he suppressed riots. I mean, it, it's, he has some black marks on there, so I'm not going to defend him too much. But even, the obituaries were, as somebody put it, surprisingly kind. Even the New York Times, which was a, very much a reform paper, said that Devery, uh, Devery after a rough and readiness, whatever the expression was, made him just so likable. It's hard to stand in harsh judgment right now. Well, I think that's one of the the pleasures of reading this book is that that you give us a very interesting and nuanced uh, vision of him and the police department because as you actually say in the book that he didn't so much uh, tolerate vice as as he regulated it. He did. You know, someone explained to me, I've been hanging out a little more with police historians, uh, and uh, someone explained to me that the police ran organized crime before prohibition and the rest of it created the mafia and the black hand and all the rest of it that the police were you know in effect the verb is organized they organized crime they in fact there i have a few stories in the book where there were disputes over who could run a, a gambling joint you know on what corner what saloon and and the police actually come in and and ultimately make the decision and they also uh, what brothels and and they totally decided which corner streetwalkers could walk on you know 
you have a, a great line in there that um, you talk about all the prurience, all the all the prostitution, all the sex, all the the illegal uh, gambling, and all the illegal saloons, and and as far as Bill Big Devery was concerned, all the prurience represented a gold mine. Yeah, well, it, it really did. When he when he finally retired, he was wealthier than Roosevelt. Uh, it's just staggering. I mean, Roosevelt, what some people don't realize, was born into one of the wealthiest families in New York City. His father had inherited uh, one million dollars when a million dollars is I don't know what you want to compare it to, $100 million, whatever. Is it people were earning $300 a year when, when, Devery, uh, when Roosevelt's father inherited his million. So, uh, and uh, when Devery retired, I mean, talk about Irish drivers, Devery was as wealthy as Roosevelt, thanks to vice and payoffs and uh, all the corruption. One of the things I think you do a great job of in this book is giving an, a, giving us a vision of inside the police department as kind of in itself a society within society. And it's something that, you know, I've never really thought of in the way that you portray it. I'd like you to describe what you found and how you found it. Well, I, I, it was interesting. The The biggest uh, aspect of life that differs from the 1890s to today regarding the police department is that they slept together. They One quarter of the police force needed to uh, sleep what was called on reserve in the precinct houses uh, every night. And it's just a huge difference. Um, their work week was staggering. Um, between reserve duty and actual duty in the streets, they worked 110 hours a week. And if you just do the math of how many, seven times 24, how many hours there are in a week, that only leaves, I think it was 58 hours to be with your family, less commuting time. So they were so, they were together so much, they became, I would call it like a, a platoon in enemy territory almost. The enemy was the higher ranking officers who were the, the ones that were real, the crackdown guys. And the enemy was, was in a way the civilians. I mean, enemy might be too strong a word, but it was us against them. And there was a culture that, that very Irish, the force was two thirds Irish. They had pranks and rituals. Uh, for instance, I mean, I wish I'd had room for all of them. This one I didn't have room for in the book. But one detective wrote he couldn't read a newspaper sitting on the toilet unless he folded it up into like eight eight times over because someone would light it on fire. Um, he they put Limburger cheese in each other's hats. They um, they had a, a hazing ritual for rookies where they stripped the rookie naked and painted them green, shamrock green, their favorite color. It just, I mean, I think an army platoon is a better, uh, is a pretty good analogy. And then they had, they had roundsmen who were the next rank. They didn't, uh, they had sergeants, but they didn't have lieutenants in that era. But anyhow, the next rank up above patrolmen was a roundsman. And the roundsman basically went around and, and checked out if the uh, patrolman was doing his duty. And so it was a very much us versus them, whether they could get away with sleeping at night. They would uh, they would find a coop where they could spend the night. You know they had they had semaphore signals that they do because you know there are no cell phones to warn somebody that the roundsman's coming. So they literally had like you know arms spread wide, met roundsman coming and things like that. And uh, they they shared stories about the time one of the cops got stuck in um, got stuck in a funeral parlor. He was talking to a buddy, and some little boy runs in and tips him off. The roundsman's coming down the block, and he's got to figure out what to do. And uh, there's no there's no back entrance or side entrance. And then about five minutes later, he's seen walking down the block and taps the roundsman on the shoulder who's staring into the funeral home. And uh, the cops enjoyed the fact that he had himself wheeled out in a coffin so that he could escape. And then he just calmly walked down the block. But uh, it, it was it was us versus them. And the blue wall of silence was intense. They cracked it a little in 1894. And the man who, who squealed, Max Schmidtberger, was known as a squealer for the rest of his life. And he was in Goff's Griddle. <laughs> yeah, Goff's Griddle. The, the newspapers then. That, you know, I think the most fun part about doing this book was the newspapers in the 1890s. They had so much fun. I mean, they, they teased. I mean, Roosevelt winds up on the front page uh, in these just, uh, they're so mean, the cartoons. I, I mean, you know, his, his teeth are oversized, his glasses, he looks like a schoolboy. They... They, they, the headlines of the paper, they just had, they had way too much fun doing what they were doing. So we have on one side of the battle lines, we have the, the cops and they're essentially protecting the prostitutes and 
profiting from the houses of prostitution and profiting from the saloons and trying to keep themselves, keep the higher cops and the politicians and the commissioners and the public at large at bay. And then we have the public who, and especially Reverend Parkhurst, who's leading this kind of crusade to, to stop the corruption and, and root out the sin, into this cauldron in 1895. Teddy Roosevelt arrives and talk about the police commission he joined and the peculiar dynamics of that commission. Well, it was staggering. First off, just before I get to the commission, I mean, the idea that the man would come in and think that he was going to clean up New York City is just staggering. And the fact that he never backed down on his principles is, again, staggering. Uh, I mean, it's not my role as as a writer of history to agree or disagree, but you, ha- you have to admire the courage in the situation. Uh, he comes in and he's, he's on a four-man police board, which Roosevelt already didn't like because um, they needed unanimous votes to do promotions. And Roosevelt, frankly, just didn't work well with other people in, in this regard. He, he, the Washington Post said, um, uh, Reverend Parker said to put, put your, con- told his congregants, put your faith in Theodore Roosevelt and the Lord. And the Washington Post commented, back in 1895, commented, we doubt Mr. Roosevelt will agree to this division of responsibility. And there was something very much to that. So he's on a four-man board, and he has one sort of a little bit of a psychophant, uh, an avid bicyclist named Avery Andrews, who is uh, pretty worshipful of Roosevelt and will agree with Roosevelt on everything. Uh, But then he has this wily lawyer named Andrew D. Parker. And uh, Parker is is one of the few men who, who really tied Roosevelt in knots. Parker was, I think, you know, I didn't want to put modern labels on him, but he has... You know, you'd you think of um, Asperger's. He's almost like someone with Asperger's syndrome. He's so precise and so into details, which is the exact opposite of Roosevelt. And, and so Roosevelt blusters and comes up with these great big picture ideas and wants to put them through. And Parker finds this fine print that, that, that makes it impossible to do it. And Roosevelt at first thinks Parker's just being precise. But, but by the end, he's so tied in knots that, that he thinks Parker is absolutely evil. And, and as you said in the beginning, Roosevelt really is a black and white man and in many regards. And, and he winds up demonizing Andrew Parker. He thinks Parker is virtually pure evil by the end. And he, he does everything to get Parker off the board. But, uh, and then the sort of swing vote is Ulysses' president, late president Ulysses S. Grant's son, Frederick uh, Dent Grant, who um, Teddy Roosevelt would call uh, at one point a muttonhead. He's not uh, the he's sharpest not the... stick in, the... <laughs> in no. the pile, is he? No, he's not. And, and you know, a lot of people thought he was a good, solid, hard worker and that his heart was in the right place. But he, had, he also had delusions of grandeur. He expected to be president someday. He was furious when he gets offered assistant secretary of war as, that, as being beneath him. I mean, uh, and... Uh, Roosevelt a couple times uh, took Grant to the woodshed and lectured him on his duty, and uh, they had one major, major rift over a police trial of a police captain that Grant announced midway through the trial that he believed this man to be uh, not guilty, which is, since Grant is sitting as judge and will eventually be part of a four-man jury, that's a little ridiculous to do in the middle of a trial. And Roosevelt explained it to him, and he thought Grant was okay with his explanation, but it turned out that Grant would side with Parker in a lot of very important decisions in the future, and that made life very hard. Roosevelt was the president of the board, but that president didn't come with any more votes than any of the other three members. He he wanted it, though. And well, he went to the legislature to try and change it. To, he literally tried to have the law changed so that he his vote, you know, they would only need a, a three to one vote to get things through, but it didn't happen. You do a great job at uh, showing us this conflict between uh, Parker and uh, and Roosevelt, and, and Parker just seems whether it, it's it's a little bit hard to tell whether Parker is wily or just obtuse, but he is the <laughs> absolutely perfect foil for Roosevelt. They are opposite in almost every way. It was very fun. I felt really lucky. I mean, I do look for these things, but I, I loved having Big Bill Devery of Tammany versus Reverend Parkhurst, and I and it was really fun to have um, Andrew D. Parker against uh, against Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, yeah, Parker. It's hard. It's hard to know his motives. At some point, 
I, I just presented the evidence. I, I, I think actually he was very much behind most all the reform movements that Roosevelt backed. I think they weren't very far apart. I think Parker Parker's overly precise brain could not handle the way Roosevelt was picking the next uh, inspectors who were and deputy commission who would be online to be the next chief of police. His precise brain couldn't tolerate Roosevelt kind of steamrolling into Republicans, and uh, the feud just never stopped. Now Roosevelt did go on a crusade, a very ill-advised crusade. He was going to sweep the sand back into the sea. Talk about the Sunday ban. Oh, my God. Of all, he, About six weeks into the job, Roosevelt is literally one of the most popular men in New York. It's astounding. Between standing up to police officers, between his, quote, his quotability, his energy, an aristocrat willing to, to take midnight rambles with Jake Reese and, and, and see the city. He is so popular, and he can virtually use this popularity any way he wants, and he decides to pretty much bet all his chips on closing the saloons on Sundays. An astounding decision. Uh, you can see why he made it, because he wanted to end police corruption. Uh, the police were taking bribes to break the Sabbath law, the Sabbath excise law that that supposedly called for the saloons to be shut. He also was was against that kind of alcoholism that uh, apparently people went on a lot of binges on Sunday because it was the working man's only day off. And Monday was one of the busiest hospital days. Um, and also there was a secret reason, too, because Tammany Hall used the saloons as political meeting places. And if Roosevelt undermined the saloons and they expected maybe a quarter might close without Sunday business, he would be undermining the Tammany Democrats as well. So it worked on a lot of levels. It was an enormous mistake. The vision that you give us of this world, it's its so like ours, but so different. And this, what we were looking at here is, you know, the kind of the prototype for prohibition. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Roosevelt's on the record as saying that he opposes prohibition, just to uh, uh, be precise about it. And he he said because 1920ths of the population opposes it. So he thought it was an impractical law. Um, and he, he says that repeatedly. But he did warm to the idea of shutting the saloons on Sunday. At first, he thought maybe they should be open maybe three, four hours a day, have a compromise. And he, he didn't tell anyone this, but he, he didn't tell it publicly. He he wrote it in letters. But uh, uh, then by the end of the uh, the battle, he decides that the Sunday, the saloon should be absolutely shut on Sundays. And, and he starts lecturing to temperance groups, reform groups, church groups. He becomes uh, widely popular, especially outside of New York for this stance, because I think there was a lot of feeling like, look at this man who's trying to clean up, you know, Sodom. Wow, this is impressive. You know, it- one of the things I think you do a good job at in this book is like um, letting the readers kind of make inferences and get insights into characters. And one of the things I kept thinking, because I liked Roosevelt so much during this book, was I kept thinking that he kind of, and, and you imply this too, that he really would have liked to have had New York, ch- the, the people in New York change that bill to let the things be open on Sunday. But confronted with the law, he c- just couldn't let go. He got his teeth into that and he just could not let go of that law. I would completely agree with you. And I think it's pretty fascinating to think about the concept. I just went to dinner. It so happened uh, they were nice enough to invite me to the Harvard Club to give a speech about the book. And at dinner afterwards, they had two very high-ranking police officers, I believe both lieutenants, uh, sitting at dinner. And we discussed whether all, and I'm not naming names, we discussed um, whether all laws are actually enforced. And one of the people near me said, of course they're not. Uh, probably 80, 90 percent of, of, cr- of crimes have to be ignored in order for a policeman to do his job. And I think that's counterintuitive to the general public. Uh, basically, what he's saying is if you if you go for the, the litter bugs, if you go for, I don't know, somebody who throws a rock that misses somebody, if you go for a lot of, a lot of mid-level stuff, that when the really big things happen, you're not going to be ready. You're just, you just can't throw everyone in prison. You can't. Inf- it, it's hard to explain. And Roosevelt was also the police manual, 110-page police manual. He wanted every single infraction. Basically, if they used a toilet in a saloon, they were supposed to write a written report. Well, basically, they're, they're going to miss every crime while writing those reports. So the, the man at the Harvard Club tells me that the police manual is now 3,000 pages long. 
And basically, it's used at trials more than for day-to-day conduct because it's impossible to honor every single one of those things. So Roosevelt was... He was just so idealistic about this. He wanted to enforce every law, and if it was a wrong law, he wanted it taken off the books, and and he just would have needed a parallel universe, but you have great sympathy for him. Uh, And he was, as his popularity declined, he kept, he uh, got some uh, letter (laughs) bombs even. Yeah, he did. He got two two letter bombs, and I, I, I like to try to be precise with how these things work, and it was just fascinating for me to see that somebody had positioned match heads in a way and then put a uh, piece of sandpaper on the other side so that if someone pulls the label or pulls the wrapping paper off quickly, that causes a spark, and the spark lights the fuse of a cartridge filled with gunpowder. Uh, one of them actually had gunpowder in it. The other one was filled with sawdust. But uh, he, he enraged some people. Now, one of the problems was that as he became less popular, that everybody, he was such an outsized man, and he's he was uh, very much in advance in, uh, in his time in terms of how he was, you know, able and willing to use the press. But when he used the press that way, he also set himself up as a target. So when there was a, the Burden House was robbed, robbed, um, he got a lot of uh, flack out of that. Although you tell a very amusing anecdote about a policeman who uh, searched the freezer. Right. He he searched the the uh, ice box and. Um, um, he he lifted a ham up, and uh, one of the you know kitchen maids says to him, "Are you gonna you know look at everything in this entire house? Can't we have a bit left for dinner?" And he puts the ham back down, and uh, you know they search the house just everywhere. And it turned out later that the uh, the burden diamond was hidden inside the ham, and that it was an inside job by the uh, the servants and the housemaid, one housemaid, and. Um, and that's where they hit it the whole time. So uh, Roosevelt was off giving a speech, I believe, in Philadelphia. I'm not sure if he was even in town. And that was the Washington Post, for some reason, uh, delighted in saying Roosevelt uh, you know, is lecturing the rest of the country on how he's stopping crime while thieves are having a heyday in New York. Uh, you know, this book is just uh, chock-a-block with great characters. And I'd like you to talk about one of my favorite bad cops, Clubber Bill. Uh, you mean uh, Clubber Williams, yeah. Clubber Williams, yes. Uh, right. Um, yeah, Clubber Williams supposedly had more than 400 uh, complaints against him during his record. He uh, he was known for clubbing. You know, the police nightstick in that era was two feet long and one and five inches, uh, five-eighths inches wide of uh, hard granadilla wood or locust wood, and it was a fearsome weapon. And... Um, you know, Clubber Williams did not hesitate to use the thing. I mean, supposedly when he first got his job, um, you know, in a new precinct, uh, he asked who who were the toughest guys in the precinct, finds out who they are, and he tossed them through a, a saloon window. Clubber uh, Williams, he, he was just fearless, but you, he had a New York swagger about him, uh, even though he happened to be from Canada, actually, a sailor. But uh, he um, he basically mouthed off to Roosevelt during hearings back in the 1880s, and uh said that there should be a brothel district in New York. He said forcing the women out of the brothels is like taking a smallpox patient and putting it on the street. Uh, he he just had such a swagger about him. He's a good character. You know, you mentioned these earlier, but I'd like you to talk a little, a little bit more detail. One of the things that endeared uh, Teddy Roosevelt to the populace, um, not necessarily to the police, was his uh, habit of going on uh, midnight rambles in in some sort of disguise. Talk about that, because that's a really fun part. Yeah, Roosevelt. Uh, well, Roosevelt had read Jacob Reese's book, How the Other Half Lives, and, which had come out years, you know, half a decade earlier. And... Uh, Roosevelt liked it and basically sent him a note uh, to Reese, how can I help? And by that point, Reese was now the crime editor at the Evening Sun. And Reese probably knew more about the New York police maybe than anyone in New York. I mean, Reese was new, new tons. So he was the perfect guide for Roosevelt to take these walks with. And Reese apparently liked to stay up late and do this sort of thing anyhow. And he was just thrilled to find somebody who was willing to do it with him. And uh, they met outside the Union League Club on Fifth Avenue, and uh, I think one was wearing a long white coat, and the other one had green green eyeglasses on, you know. And um, uh, they 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 started walking, and the the biggest problem was that they couldn't find any cops. They found a couple, and then they couldn't find anyone any because basically cops at night. It was an open secret that they found what was called a coop, and they spent the night somewhere. Um, so. 
Roosevelt and Reese were out looking, and, and if they did find a cop, usually he was talking to a streetwalker, just having a nice long conversation, and Roosevelt couldn't stand it. And uh, he would jump into the, the conversation, and he'd say, Officer, why aren't you doing your duty? And um, the man would just look at this five-foot, eight-inch guy in a mustache and eyeglasses and just, you know, buddy, get on your way. And, uh, you know, Roosevelt wasn't, uh, this, this was a day before newspapers had photographs. There were still drawings, so they didn't recognize him. And he was in a slouch hat, too. Uh, and uh, he, a couple cops threatened to beat him, uh, and Roosevelt would just say, uh, my name is Commissioner Theodore Roosevelt. Appear at my office tomorrow morning at 9.30. And he just uh, loved this game of bullying the bullies. And the public did, too, because the public had been just bossed around on every street corner at every crossing, uh, every gathering outside theaters. They, the police just ran the city. And they loved the idea of this aristocratic guy standing up to the police. That, his midnight rambles were incredibly popular. But then he decided to have the Sunday shutdown. And I'd like you to right. talk about the, his first meeting when he, he announced this with a bunch of the angry Germans. Uh, the, the, well, first off, people forget how large the German population was in New York. It was the second largest immigrant population after the Irish. And the Germans adored their beer gardens. They went, uh, the, the orchestras played, and there were tables. I mean, they, they, they could seat a 1,000 people, one of these places. And uh, they ate uh, Frankfurters and Limburger cheese, and, and uh, it was incredibly popular. And it, and it was families. It wasn't, you know, the saloon, you could argue, was men throwing shots back or drinking too many beers in a darkened place. But this was in the broad sunshine with families all together and orchestral music. Anyhow, they had, uh, they had agreed to help elect the reform mayor and go against Tammany Hall. And Mayor Strong, during the campaign, had promised that he was in favor of liberal Sundays. And when he gets elected, he might have still been in favor of it, but Roosevelt didn't consult him. Roosevelt just cracked down, and the mayor backed up his, pol his police commissioner. And the Germans were just beyond furious. And so they, they come to City Hall, and uh, they tell Roosevelt that New York is a modern city and we won't be put in a spiritual straitjacket. And the part that I like the best is that later before the next election, 30,000 Germans marched in the street in favor of beer. I mean, this would have been a great thing, you know, b before St. Patrick's Day or whatever. Uh, the idea of like this massive New York parade in October of 1895, just chanting in favor of beer. And they had slogans about send the police czar back to Russia and uh, Roosevelt's razzle-dazzle reform racket. And uh, they just, they were, they were outraged. And, and at the next election, they took out their anger and reelected Tammany. One of the, the details I love in this book is uh, the growlers. So <laughs> something yeah. that need, maybe needs to come back. Tell us what growlers are. Yeah, it's, there's some controversy over where the term growler comes from, but rushing the growler meant to send somebody basically with a bucket, an empty bucket to the saloon, the side door of a saloon, and you get it filled up, and then they would bring it back to the stoop. So it, there was a called the New York tradition of rushing the growler, and some people think it's growler because the sound of the suds of the beer, you know, in the tin, you know, I, there's some controversy. But what I like, and I, I don't think I wound up having room to keep it in the book, unfortunately, was that there was a, a Tammany Hall guy who later said some of his happiest memories was when he was a kid and he rushed the growler and brought home a big pail of beer because his mom and dad would sit on the stoop together and drink the beer and the family was all together. But if he wasn't sent to the saloon, his dad would go alone and just get drunk and then come home angry. So instead, rushing the growler, it's a little counterintuitive to allow a seven-year-old to bring home a bucket of beer. But he claims that it made for a nice family moment. Now, uh, there were family moments on Sunday because they found a, a way around, a way around this, this ban. Talk about the way around and about the, uh, the everlasting sandwich. Right. Well, well eventually, um, first they tried to get around it, and Roosevelt won the first round of the battle. But then he asked the legislature uh, for even more uh, restrictions where they would, um, the law would make it that the saloons had to lock their doors on Sundays and had to keep their curtains open. So Roosevelt's police force could look in the windows, basically know that they were closed. But they also passed during this same law called the Reigns Liquor Law or Liquor Tax Law. Um, they passed uh, a clause that, it, that allowed hotels to serve liquor with a meal 
24 hours, seven days a week to guests of the hotel. Um, and this loophole, I mean, everyone really thought when the Rains Law went in April 1st, 1896, it was the end of Sunday saloons. And someone got the bright idea about a week later. Well, let's just see if we can turn into a Rains Law hotel. Let's, uh, you know, carve 10 rooms. Yeah, oh, I don't know if I mentioned that. You needed to have 10 rooms to qualify as a hotel. So all these dingy saloons around New York City started throwing in 10 rooms, 10 ridiculous rooms. One was one guy carved them all in the attic so only a, mid, a midget could stand upright. Another guy took a coal bin and made it one of his bedrooms. But they, the, tam, the, the building inspectors were all Tammany, and they all approved the 10 rooms. So there you have it, these Rains Law hotels, but you needed to serve technically with a meal. So what do they do for the meal? They don't even want to bother to serve a sandwich. They can't even be bothered to do that. So so they just get one communal sandwich that sits in the center of the table. And uh, Eugene O'Neill talked about a mummified ham and cheese sandwich in a Rainslaw hotel that only the drunkenest yokel would even think of eating. And um, there was a joke, you know, going around, right? This is maybe where Eugene O'Neill got it. Maybe not. I don't know. But there was a joke going around. Um, so the owner, the bartender yells to the owner, we got to stop serving. And the owner says, why? We run out of beer? And the bartender says, no, some idiot's eating the sandwich and there's not another one available on the whole east side. <laughs> now, uh, Roosevelt also went after, had the cops and successfully had the cops go after prostitution, but they were a little too aggressive. And uh, that, thus we end up with the Lizzie Shower case. Yeah. The L- Lizzie Shower is an interesting case. I mean, I had so many to choose from. There were there were a number of women who claimed to be innocent who were arrested by Roosevelt police. In fact, by the end, they did a, they did several raids, and the newspapers claimed that 25% of the women arrested were allowed to leave immediately by the judges, which, you know, implies that, you know, one in four women arrested for streetwalking by Roosevelt's police force. You know, I shouldn't keep—it was Roosevelt's police force, but it was also the entire board. It was Mayor Strong's police force um, were innocent. Uh, so anyhow, Lizzie Shower was a young girl who claimed she was looking to find her uncle and got lost late at night. And she asked directions of a couple different men on the street, you know, and a policeman sees her and arrests her for prostitution. And the judge sentences her to to a choice of uh, three days, I think, in the was it workhouse or house of refuge. And she's just appalled. She's, she's, I'm an innocent girl. I don't deserve this. And they get they get the word to the, the newspapers and it starts being covered. And then it gets kind of murky because she's had a couple run-ins before. And the ultimate test of whether she's a quote-unquote good girl will be a certificate of virginity from her doctor. And uh, the whole, I mean, that's where the, the time era, I think, uh, then you do feel like you're in the 1890s. And the doctor's writing a letter of a certificate of good behavior for her and... Uh, Ultimately, she gets released by a higher court judge who decides that uh, the arrest was completely unwarranted. But Roosevelt never apologized, and uh, Chief Conlon claimed that we protected her from a much worse fate by picking her up that night. Yeah, you you mentioned uh, Roosevelt makes exactly one apology in this book. <laughs> you refresh my memory. Which one was, it was that? Uh, <laughs> to the mayor, I think. Uh, oh, right. Yeah, because it wasn't to the city. I didn't think so. Yeah, no, he did apologize uh, Basically, for keep for for fighting Andrew Parker and forgetting to tell the mayor about a, a a very aggressive letter that Roosevelt was writing, and that's about as close to an apology as he came. Well, one, that Andrew Parker battle is that heated up. It was really interesting to read about the the politics and the dirty tricks and all the articles in the paper. I mean, and uh, Roosevelt, I think he was in terms of how he used the media. He was really well ahead of his time because he's such an outsized figure, and he figured out pretty early on that he just did he did quite well saying the most outrageous and over the top things. Yeah, I think he, he, you know, other people would be better experts on the topic than I am, but but his speeches certainly got more aggressive and and more vitriolic. And you know, he starts comparing uh, Democrats. Uh, I can't remember whether this was in a letter or in a speech, but talks about the Democratic convention being a witch's Sabbath, and uh, he starts uh, calling uh, farmers the basis set in the land, and he 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 just talks about. You know, some of the people supporting William Jennings Bryan is just being embittered people who want to not repay their debts. And he, he his rhetoric starts to heat up incredibly. Uh, he did have trouble. You know, the New York, New York newspapers, he, he 
he really wasn't able to completely manipulate. By the end, he had uh, he had he had offended almost all of them, and uh, uh, everyone thought that it was a, a a great retreat, a great escape when he when he succeeded in becoming assistant secretary of the navy. At the end, uh, I love the how he got into it with the, I think the the New York uh, Mercury, where he would like do it did this kind of tip for yeah. tat two column thing. He did that. He did that. He really said to all the newspapers, it was extraordinary. He 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 was so angry at Parker. Parker claimed, you got to admire the Parker claimed that all the major police promotions. Uh, officer promotions that were Republican were actually fostered by Parker, and that that Roosevelt had pushed mostly Democrats. <laughs> Which, just if you know the politics of the time, I mean Roosevelt is a rabid Republican. They accusing him of of pushing only Democrats. It's um, and I mean maybe in this case Parker was being a little evil or deluded. He he. I mean it's just such an outrageous charge. And Roosevelt went ballistic and wrote something like a seven-page, double-columned letter. Going uh, each promote promotion by promotion, explaining um, how he had not indeed backed only Democrats. And see, the thing was, he claimed to be nonpartisan, so he wasn't supposed to know the political party of anyone he promoted. So he was kind of caught a little bit in his own rhetoric. How do I prove that I haven't pushed Democrats when I'm not supposed to know what their party is? So, but he was a smart guy too. I mean, he when an extreme anti-Semite German came over who was going to rent a lecture hall and looked like he could start a lot of trouble and cause a lot of problems. Uh, Roosevelt came up with a really great plan for for just defusing that very simply. Absolutely, I think that was Roosevelt at his absolute best. It's a wonderful little uh, probably forgotten story that uh, there was this Herr Hermann Alvart who came. Uh, to basically preach anti-Semitism loudly to the United States. And he got a chance to talk at Cooper Union. And uh, some major Jewish figures in New York uh, were begging the mayor and begging Roosevelt not to let him speak. Uh, and Roosevelt said, no, this is the, we're, we're so proud of in the United States as we do give people an opportunity to express themselves. But Roosevelt decided that what he would do is he would have the entire police force that would be assigned to uh, guard uh, the, uh, the speaker and make sure no riots broke out, he would make sure they were all Jewish. So he found 40 Jewish officers to guard Herman Alvart. So Alvart, while he's trashing Jews for their, you know, he claims you can't find a Jew in the Bible who's ever had a job. Um, while he's trashing Jews, he's being guarded by Jews. And, and it was a, a great irony, and it worked out, the whole thing worked out very well. Um, it didn't get covered much, though, but it worked out well. He didn't always have good uh, words for his fellow Republicans either. I love the description you give of what he says of, of uh, Mr. Raines, the author of the Raines Law, who he said he had the same idea of public life and civil service that a vulture has of a dead sheep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was Roosevelt when he was in the assembly in the early years. Uh, Roosevelt's unbelievably articulate and entertaining. I mean, he's, he's someone has said he's at his best when he's when he's angriest. I mean, he, he will say things that you can't imagine. And He's he's articulate, entertaining, wonderful character. He unfortunately made that decision to shut down the Sunday saloons for a lot of the a lot of right reasons. But New York City really never forgave him. Uh, I think you do a fabulous job of putting what could be a kind of a, a rootless series of events, giving us a real story, a story arc, characters to root for, painting Roosevelt in this really complicated uh, manner, and and. Also delivering a bang-up finale with scandals and uh, who knew audio porn. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't resist. Inc- I had a shoehorn the audio porn in, but I just couldn't leave it out. Uh, Edison wax cylinders were the you know Edison invented the phonograph, and they used wax cylinders at that point. And of course, as soon as any new media emerges, uh, there is smut races, smut purveyors race to to create. And there was. Um, there were these uh, wax cylinders of of a, of a fake meeting of prostitutes where they set the prices. And they told jokes like, um, she's a ballet dancer. First she dances on one leg, then on the other. Between the two, she makes a living. Um, <laughs> they just, just uh, yeah, I couldn't resist the, the wax cylinders. And uh, there was also a, a scandal that uh, uh, Ashbel Fitch, who was no friend of, uh, of Roosevelt, brought out. Yeah, Roosevelt basically lost his temper so bad that when when Fitch challenged him to a duel, Roosevelt accepted. 
Uh, I mean, you know, it was a moment, heat of anger. But, you know, if he wants to enforce all the laws on the books, technically there was a law against accepting challenges to duels. So the press had too much fun teasing him over that. And then even even um, Jacob Reese wanted to defuse it. And he suggested that that they have a battle with fire hoses in the public square and shoot the Croton Reservoir water at each other. Uh, but Asheville Fitch accused Roosevelt, in effect, of paying for prostitutes by allowing his police detectives to go to brothels and expense account it. So Fitch was the controller, and he he, he showed all the expense accounts of Roosevelt's cops that, you know, $10 for wine, $10 for Mary so-and-so, and um, it, it was a good battle. You know— I- the picture of Roosevelt in this in this book, and and you know, I, I have to kind of stop myself from describing it as a novel because that's how it reads. Is I think very different from any other picture of Roosevelt we've seen, and also the picture of New York is is positively shocking, and that's saying something. Well, I appreciate you saying saying those things. I I think part of the reason the Roosevelt uh, portrait's a little different is because. While I was doing these endless years of research, I didn't allow myself to read about Roosevelt past 1897. I didn't want to be swayed by the great man and Cuba and in the presidency and trust busting and all the other wonderful things he wound up doing. I wanted to just capture this two-year mission as police commissioner. I thought that was the authentic story to reveal and wherever he would go afterwards, God bless. But this is what I wanted to get at. And I'm wondering, too, for you, as uh, you're in New York, even as we speak, and, and I'm wondering how much this has changed your perception of the city you live in now, knowing how it was then and what it is now. Well, it's changed my perception in a lot of ways. One of the biggest is that you can't enforce all the laws. I never thought about I don't think most people do. You know, okay, we drive 65 in a 55 zone. We know about that one, but we don't know about so many laws that have to be ignored. There's just tens of thousands of pages of laws. I mean, if there were if there were 52 laws, they should all be enforced up to the hilt, but it's just not that simple. So the, uh, that's changed. And then looking at some of the streets, I'm going to be doing a walking tour with somebody. And it's just so much fun to picture uh, that there was an elevated train, you know, running down the middle of the Bowery and crisscrossing at Chatham Square. And, you know, the, the, almost two million pounds of horse manure per day were dropped on the streets of New York. It's just a different city. And uh, I think we're we're uh, we're getting that uh, same quality of the same material, only it comes over the Internet <laughs> these days. Yeah. Instead of wax cylinders. Yep. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think too that how interesting it is your portrait of, of Roosevelt. He he was he was very uh, media savvy. I think he was he was, but uh, you know, again, me my trying to stay in my time period. He he was very media savvy, but on the other hand, he wound up getting absolutely roasted by by the New York papers, and there were front page cartoons that are just too cruel. He didn't talk to uh, Walt McDougal for two years. Um, McDougal was the lead cartoonist for the New York World. We forget the New York World had half a million circulation when the New York Times only had about 15,000 circulation. The World was the dominant paper, the World, Herald, Sun, Tribune. The Times was just an, an also ran back then. Uh, Richard, what are you working on now? I actually got under contract to do a Mark Twain book. Wow. So uh, I'm going to be following him, and the, the timing's great. I get, I've always, I've done three historical narratives, and they've all been couple hundred years apart, I finally get to stay in the same time period, which is going to be a blessing. That'll be good. I've been speaking with Richard Zacks. His new book is Island of Vice, Theodore Roosevelt's Doomed Quest to Clean Up Sin-Loving New York. Thank you for joining me, Richard. Thanks a lot. It's great talking to you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom slash agony.